All right, Shabbat Shalom, everybody again. This is The Late Show, part two of the evening, and I'm going to be continuing my research that I started with my 537 AD paper, just so hopefully everyone isn't confused. Um, 537 AD was a kind of a sequel spinoff paper from my 536 AD paper, and then I went on and talked about the year 541 and uh, the rise of the Quran and Muhammad and all that, and showing how all of this comes into a, a timetable that I believe uh, was the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that it happened 500 years after Yahushua HaMashiach's resurrection, that it was manifested on the earth. I, I've gone over the I don't want to really focus on the dates tonight. I, I've gone over the dates so many times. And I've showed the scripture verses as to why uh, I came up with that. It was just because the Bible told me so. Um, like these extra biblical books, they just straight up told me that's what would happen. And um, I feel that it fits like a glove. So uh, you you guys can all refer back to my 537 AD presentation. I'm just going to skim through this. But 537 was here. So 536 was the year when there was this worldwide fire events. And by that, I mean that we can prove that there were in the very least many, more than one, maybe dozens, but many volcanoes all over the world blowing up, all the way south of China, all the way over to Alaska. And one of the ways this can be proven is that tree rings, of course, they don't lie, tree rings from Mongolia and uh, Serbia over to Ireland, down into, of course, England and over to all the way to California, down into Mexico and South America, all tree rings show that the year 536 was like the worst year in recorded history. Uh, that would be, of course, modern history because I think Noah's flood was probably pretty bad. Uh, but 536 was a year which I've shown was where the sun did not shine for 18 months. It was completely hidden, the stars, the moon. Uh, there was a, like weird fog. It was a freeze, an endless winter for 18 months. Crops died. It, it was just, it was very apocalyptic. Of course, 537 turns out to be the year that King Arthur was killed. Camelot came to an end. And uh, so that's interesting. And, and my whole position that I'm I'm coming forward here. I, I've been really obsessed reading a lot of Arthurian literature recently. Back when I was in college, I did too. And I took this big break of 20 years and now I'm getting back into it. And it's been kind of a mystery to me. It's kind of funny, right? The Arthurian mysteries. But I, and really, I didn't really know how to make sense of it all, but now it's all coming together. And I believe that uh, the Arthurian mysteries or Camelot was the controllers kind of their way of pushing everyone's gaze away from what was actually happening on the earth and that this was their version of the perfect kingdom and basically like camelot died right that the dream died with the initiation of the actual kingdom upon the earth so just think of camelot in orwellian terms and it makes starts making a lot more sense the one thing i did want to cover before we start getting into this is the um it's where I showed you the prophecy that Merlin gave, where he's speaking to Jeffrey of Monmouth. And they, the short story is that this, uh, they keep trying to erect this tower, and the king can't figure out why it keeps collapsing. 
they go get Merlin. Merlin says, oh, well, there's these two dragons that live underneath this, this where you're trying to build this tower. And they live in the water. They live inside of a rock in the water. And and they don't believe them. They're like, okay. So they go clear it and they uh, clear the water, clear the rocks. And lo and behold, there's these two dragons. These two dragons are fighting. And they're like, what in the world's going on here? And Merlin tells them, he says that the red dragon represents uh, Pendragon and Camelot, right? It, it represents our version of Britain. The white dragon represents the invasion of the Saxons. And the Saxons are going to come and they're going to invade. And of course, the Saxons did invade when Arthur died at the battle with Mordred. And that he prophesied, he said that these white, the, the, the government, the people of this white dragon are going to... Um, uh, they're going to rule here and they're going to build castles and towers and gardens and all these things. And when the red dragon returns, the red dragon is going to trample over all this. And I read that. I like, I'm falling out of my seat. I'm like, this is, this is exactly like everything lines up with the research. The white dragon is the government of Yahuwah or Yahusha HaMashiach. So with that in mind, and just also show here that, uh, of course, you can see all this in the video, or you can read this for yourself. It was uh, King uh, King Henry the Seventh, of course, the father of King Henry the Eighth. He started up the House of Tudors, and he was he. Well, the the, the Welsh flag. If you go to uh, Wales today, the Welsh flag is it was recognized in 1959, and you could see it right there, the picture of the red dragon. So there is our controllers saying that the red dragon's back in power. It's like, well, that's interesting because according to Merlin, you know, the, the red dragon would return, you know, the age of Camelot type of thing again, right? There was this whole intermission with the white dragon. The white dragon is no more. And it was, uh, it was King Henry VII who he actually flew in 1485 at the Battle of Bosworth, which was the last significant battle of the War of the Roses. He wins. He starts at the House of Tudors. He actually flies the Red Dragon in victory at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And then I also pointed out, it's interesting, the King Henry VIII. Uh, here you can see pictures of the Millennial Kingdom structures that King Henry VIII went and destroyed. It was something like, how many? 800 in a very few short years. One of which happened to be uh, Glastonbury. Glastonbury is where uh, the beautiful cathedral that was there, that was where, uh, that was Avalon. That's where Joseph of Arimathea lived and his ministry was where he was buried and where King Arthur and Guinevere were buried. And when they dug them up and found that they were, uh, the King Arthur was actually a giant, that's where they were buried. But they were all destroyed by King Henry VIII. So we talk about how there's this, these movements to destroy all these, this ancient architecture, but it started right away. If the Millennial Kingdom came to an end when I think it did right around the year 1500, it started within 20 years. And here you have King Henry VIII destroying the, these beautiful cathedrals and friaries and huge buildings and castles in his own country, not in a foreign country, but in his own country. He's just destroying them. All right. So that's the rise of the Red Dragon, seeking vengeance, just as Merlin prophesied. It came through King Henry VIII. <clears throat> All right. Um, oh, I forgot I was going to read this tonight. Oh, man, I have a lot to read. I'm in trouble. We're going to be here for a couple hours. I hope you guys uh, uh, are strapped in with your seatbelt, got your coffee, popcorn, whatever you need. Architects of Camelot. 
Another tidbit about Merlin is that he was conceived by an incubus, which is only somewhat awkward. People keep telling me Arthur was a Christian king. What text are they reading from? I guess the better question is asking how one defines Christian. Christianity is such a broad term, often so far removed from Yahuwah's instructions in Set Apart Living that describing it as being enveloped by shades of paganism is being kind. My point here is that Arthur may very well have been a Christian king, whoop-de-doo, not debating that fact. To try and convince me, however, that he was raised above a pagan Christian king will be quite the heavy stone indeed, as there's a world of difference between the two. I think I've made my point by now that Camelot was the ideal kingdom by those who prefer to rebel against the true kingdom of Bashiach and live an unclean life. I just got distracted, but not really. Getting back to Merlin and the incubus. Among the propagandists, Merlin was the ideal prophet, albeit a false prophet, giving testimony to the false Messiah, as embodied by Arthur. But don't take my word for it. I decided to track down a copy of Robert de Baron's Merlin and was bowled over by his biography of the man. I told you guys, starting out, that I've been reading a lot of Arthurian literature recently. So here's a, a direct quote from the book. Then the demons spoke amongst themselves, saying, Those who said so most uh, those who said so most are the prophets. They are the cause of all our troubles. They, the more they spoke of him, uh, Messiah, the more we tormented them. And now it seems he hurried to their aid to rescue them from the tortures we were inflicting. Very quickly, and I'll explain this afterwards, that this is actually a scene from Sheol. And you guys know how I love the gospel of Nicodemus. Well, what I love about this is that this uh, the book Merlin actually plays out as a direct sequel to the Gospel of Nicodemus. It's the scene in Sheol after Yahusha takes all the prophets and all the, the righteous, uh, all those who obeyed his instructions up to heaven. And now Sheol is left empty and all the, like the, the unclean spirits are down there going, well, what do we do now? So then how can we find a man who would speak to others on our behalf and tell them of our total knowledge of all things past. If we had such a man, he could converse converse with the people on earth and help us greatly to deceive men and women alike, just as the prophets worked against us when we had them here. So they were saying that even the prophets were down in Sheol preaching to people and that people were listening to them in Sheol. That's kind of interesting right there because you guys remember when I gave the presentation on um, the Narnia Reset and Mr. Tumnus and the idea of what C.S. Lewis talked about, how he believed that uh, salvation isn't just within this lifetime, that, you know, that a person doesn't lie where they fall like a tree, uh, that people can still choose righteousness or uh, an unclean life in the afterlife. Uh, that's kind of interesting because that's what the, according to this text, the demons in Sheol were complaining that whenever the, the prophets would speak, people would listen to them and they were trying to shut them up in Sheol. Then they said it would be a great deed to create such a man, for they would all believe in him. And this comes from Merlin. So Boron's biography begins in Sheol of all places, presumably moments after Yahushua HaMashiach broke its bars and released the captives free and took him up to paradise. In this way, it acts as a sequel, more like a satanic spinoff of Bezorah Nicodemus. That'd be the Gospel of Nicodemus. Having lost their power over the set-apart Ruachoth, the dungeon demons get together and discuss a revenge tactic. The problem is that the prophets were guiding too many people towards the truth. Tell me, 
what were the prophets advocating in? Oh, that's right, the, the Torah of Yahuwah. Their decision, therefore, involves the creation of a demon child, which would manipulate Mashiach's kingdom upon the earth, slyly deceiving men and women so as to lead them on a leash away from the message of the prophets, right back down to hell again. The only hiccup is that the demons of hell, or Sheol, did not have reproductive capabilities. Their conspiracy would then need to involve the compliance of an unclean Ruachoth inhabiting the ether. They found one. So fast forward through the, the buildup to climax, and we then read this rather interesting confession. And this is Merlin speaking here. I would have you know that I am the son of a devil who deceived my mother. He was one of a kind of a demon called a uh, Hequibides who inhabit the air. Remember how Paul talks about Satan being the prince of power of the air and how the, these unclean spirits um, live right below the firmament. And of course, that's what the ascension of Isaiah says, the same thing. And he bequeathed to me the power and intelligence to know everything that has been said and done. So it's kind of interesting. So this uh, this creature, he's like a watcher, right? The watchers they live up there too. And as you guys know, in Enoch, they have the they had reproductive capabilities. Apparently, some uh, spirits don't, some demons don't, but some do, according to this text. And like I said, it lines up with with the watchers. You heard me say I was fathered by a demon, but you also heard me say that our Lord gave me knowledge of the future. If you were wise, this would be a sign to you of which way I would incline. Be assured that from the moment it pleased our Lord to grant me this knowledge, I was lost to the devil. But I haven't lost the demon's craft and cunning. I've inherited from them some useful things, but they won't be used for their benefit. And that also comes from the book Merlin. Merlin openly declares himself to be the son of a demon. I, I should probably back up. You can, just so you guys know, this book Merlin, it's like one of the oldest. Uh, it goes back to, you know, this is actually like the first time, uh, I guess, that the, the Holy Grail is actually mentioned historically as a being a cup belonging to Christ. That's how old this book is. So Merlin openly declares himself to be the son of a demon, a class which he calls a hiquibides. And that's what I would believe a watcher to be. It is through his father inhabiting the ethereal realm that he receives his skills in sorcery. He then attempts to convince everyone that he was allied with the Lord and that his gift of foreknowledge derived from him. That last part regarding prophecy, I, I can believe, as even Balaam received a word from Yahuwah in Numbers 20. Telling us, however, that he was lost to the devil is a far stretch when clearly the Torah abides and Merlin never once passes the Deuteronomy 13 test. The demons were in fact successful in creating a man opposite of the prophets of Yahuwah. He could claim otherwise all he wants, but that's just the demons holding the discussion hostage, as is often the case. Really, show me a single prophet of Yahuwah who held the power of the devil rather than the Ruach HaKadosh. Chapter and verse, please. Chapter and verse. Merlin's last quip promising that he will use his gifts of the devil for the benefit of the Lord is cute and all, but then do recall how Arthur was conceived again. Another quote from the book. Then he, Merlin, turned to the king, this would be Pendragon, uh, Merlin, uh, Arthur's father, with a herb and said, rub this on your face. Was this, 
<laughs> was this the original blackface? I don't know. The king took the herb and did so, and thereupon he looked exactly like the duke. So uh, Uther Pendragon, you know, he the, the woman's name is Igern, uh, um, and the husband's name is Gorlois, and he was a he was a duke. And you know he lusted after her so much, but she would she was just pure and kept to her husband. So he actually goes and he invades one of the duke's towers. He holds him uh, there, and he goes and he pretends like he's going to be her husband now, riding in so he could lay with her. As soon as Igern heard that the duke had come, she had taken to her bed. So she she hears he's coming in. She goes. She knows why he's there. She runs to her bed. She gets ready. And when Uther saw her lying there in all her beauty, the blood stirred throughout his body. Uh, I think that's, you know, I think that's a, a, an older way of saying he, the blood went to his, you know what, he got an erection. Mm -hmm. Pendragon raped Igraine by shapeshifting into her husband, Gorlois, the Duke of Cornwall. He played the part of the incubus or the watcher. And who helped him achieve that act but the son of an incubus? Looks like Merlin was still playing the part of the demon after all. It couldn't be any more obvious by this point. The kingdom of Mashiach existed and Camelot was its satanic counterpart. Uh, so now this is, these are pictures here of Morgan Le Fay, who of course is one of Arthur's uh, incestuous sisters. A lot of that going around. Uh, through, I should say, through incest. The title I decided to go with for this section of five of the 537 article was Architects of Camelot. Seems appropriate. No, I mean, Merlin orchestrated the entire kingdom, did he not? I'm not interested in dissecting each player at the moment because that would take a book, but I would be remiss to pass up Morgan Le Fay, Arthur's half-sister. As a reminder, their mother was uh, Igraine. I, I have a misprint there i call it egern it is arthur's father pendragon who was responsible for killing morgan's father gorlois the news of his death was heralded on the night that pendragon impersonated gorlois and impregnated egern by the way well morgan le fay was undoubtedly an architect of camelot and so calling her an enchantress is by no means an exaggeration what i'm about to tell you will tie into my muhammad and the millennial kingdom paper which uh, I just read to you guys, I think two weeks ago now, I initially thought about adding it there because the incriminating evidence against Augustine, St. Augustine is only heaped upon when Morgan Le Fay is thrown into the pile. But then I realized nobody would have the slightest clue what I'm talking about. Of course, uh, supposing you haven't gotten around to the Muhammad paper or video yet, you still won't have a clue. Oh, well, I guess I'm the loser in this situation, unless you're totally into multiverses, which my research totally involves. I'm starting to call it the kingdom verse. And also because I expect this paper and that paper to end up in the same book. So here you go. Uh, this comes from the same book, Merlin. And the third daughter's name was Morgan. So that's uh, one of Arthur's uh, stepsisters. And by the advice of her friends, she was sent away to study in a nunnery and study she did until she knew a good deal about the secret arts and much about astronomy and physics. And she made use of her knowledge. Wait, what the, huh? It says Morgan Le Fay was raised in a nunnery. 
so she was a bride of Christ then? It is also in the said nunnery that she learned a great deal about the, the quote-unquote secret arts, that'd be witchcraft, making full use of that knowledge. I'm not reading anything here about nun work, or am I? OMG. That confirms what I stated in the Muhammad paper that Augustine, St. Augustine, was setting up spy net networks disguised as friaries and nunneries, and that Khadija, Muhammad's first wife and controller, was a member of one. Augustine organized spite networks in Britain as well. He called it his uh, missionary journey, quote-unquote. He wrote a letter to the Pope um, talking about it. But you and I know better. Camelot, it seems, was a project of Rome. All right. Now for the reason why we're here tonight is talking about the rod of Yahuwah and Excalibur. Is it the sword in the stone or the lady of the lake who delivered the Excalibur sword to Arthur? Whoops, I've just opened up a can of worms. My bad. If I don't make immediate sense of the situation, an AI bot disguised as one of my college professor readers will be sure to give an online lecture in Speaker's Corner detailing precisely how much more knowledgeable they are of Arthurian lore than I am. There has been, there has been quite an uptick of show bots as of late. I've been noticing it. And so I suppose it all depends upon what text you read, or movie for that matter. Now, Robert D. Boron's Merlin, which I just read to you from, was the first medieval tale to mention a sword stuck in a stone. I'll quote, I'll quote from that in a few, though when I do, no name is given to the weapon. It's just the sword and the stone. A little later down the line, the, un the unidentified writers of Prose Merlin, which is part of the Vulgate cycle, declare the sword pulled from the stone to be the one and only Excalibur. The movie Excalibur, uh, which I just watched recently, falls into the same line of thought. And I've actually, I, I watched several uh, Camelot movies trying to get information, and they were all, like the worst of all of them was the Richard Gere movie. You know, I think it was called like First Night or something like that. Like it literally was just a Richard Gere movie that happened to take place in Camelot. Uh, but, um, you know, I can't recommend Excalibur, you know, it's rated R and it's got scenes in it, but, um, I will say that, you know, cause Arthurian literature is very dark, magical, incestual stuff. I mean, there's a lot of sex, magic, drugs, rock and roll violence in it. Uh, and it's, it, it, it was the closest that I'd seen to any Arthurian literature, like it kept to the script. Anyways, in Mallory's Le Morte de Arthur, Arthur pulls a sword from the stone only to have that sword shattered while fighting with King Pellinor. It is the Lady of the Lake who replaces that one with Excalibur. So pick either story. It doesn't bother me the slightest. Whatever version of the lore you go with. So basically, whether or not the sword in the stone was Excalibur or not, it doesn't matter. I'm more preferable to Mallory's account over the mysterious scribes, but whatever. Either way, and considering everything we've come to learn, they're, they're both telling, both versions of it. So here is another quote from the book Merlin. Arthur kneeling took the sword in both hands and raised it from the anvil as easily as if nothing held it and carried it back held high. They led him to the altar and he laid the sword upon it. And when he had done so, they blessed him and anointed him and performed all the rites necessary for the making of a king from Merlin. There is Robert de Baron's account as promised. 
No name is given to the sword, though that is a sidebar argument, when in fact the sword is what promotes his divine right to rule as king of Britain. Well, here is Thomas Mallory's claim regarding the same sword. And he says in Le Morte, Morte de Arthur, Whoso pulleth out this sword or this stone and an anvil is rightwise king born of all England. Seems pretty straightforward, no? According to Mallory, the person who pulled the sword from the stone was the rightful king of Britain, and that person was Arthur. I put these quotes here for a reason. It's so that all of us can begin these discussions and hopefully end them on the same page. And oh, 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 I almost forgot. A question for the class. When did Arthur pull the sword from the stone exactly? I'm not asking for the year. All I'm looking for is a day. Any thoughts? If you guess Christmas Eve, then you would be correct. And here's what um, Baron claims. On Christmas Eve, all the clergy of the kingdom assembled with all the barons of any worth, having arranged matters exactly as Merlin commanded. The archbishop sang mass as far as the gospel, and then, just as they had made the offering, and day began to break. A great square block of stone and an anvil appeared, and in the anvil was fixed a sword, Merlin. So the winter solstice just so happens to be when the sun sails at its lowest point in the southern horizon. It remains there for three days, signifying death, and then rises again, beginning its circuit northward until you get to the summer solstice. And then it begins going south again. Having Arthur arrive on the scene to prove his worth during the winter solstice of all occasions adds up to more of them Arthurian mysteries. It's yet another RCC retelling of what very likely went down with Yahushua HaMashiach. The defining difference is that Yahuwah in the flesh goes about fulfilling his work on the seven feast days rather than those created by Nimrod. I'm wondering if Yom Teruah or Sukkot would be good contenders for when uh, Yahushua HaMashiach did a similar deed to what we're reading here with Arthur. Though now that I think about it, I've got a better one. This comes again from Merlin. Would you like then, said the archbishop, to postpone his choosing and anointing till Pentecost? We would indeed, sir, they replied, in case he proves to be unfit to be our king. So Pentecost is none other than Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Everyone knows the part regarding the Ruach HaKadosh descending upon the Talmudim, the, the disciples slash apostles, like tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2. But then Shavuot also happens to be the day when Moshe received the Torah from Yahuwah Elohim on the mountaintop. It happened 40 days after the Passover event, when Yahshua left Mitzrayim. The mysteries of Arthur tracks, tacks on those 40 days before Passover, a fasting season known as Lent, and they're doing it wrong. Why can't anyone read the directions that's laid out in Scripture? Anywho, Moshe descended the mountain only to encounter Baal worship, telling us that Yashara was not worthy. All I'm saying is, what if Yahushua HaMashiach received the rod of Yahuwah on the same day? I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I'm suggesting that if you haven't caught on yet, that the uh, that the sword of the stone Excalibur story is uh, to pull uh, kind of misdirection, pull us away from what actually happened with Yahushua HaMashiach. The fact that Moshe pulled one such rod from the earth hasn't escaped the space between my ears. I'm letting you know right now that Excalibur and the rod are connected. The story, or you could say the sword of the stone, whether or not you agree is Excalibur. No reason to keep beating that out. The story of the rod is mostly told to us in Yashar, though there are other sources, and it goes as follows. And it was that while he prayed, 
Uh, this would be Moshe praying. He looked opposite to him, and behold, a sapphire stick was placed in the ground, which was placed in the middle, which was planted in the midst of the garden. And he approached the stick, and he looked, and behold, the name of Yahuwah Alahayam Sevaoth was engraved thereon, written and de developed upon the stick. And he read it and stretched forth his hand, and he plucked it like a forest tree from the thicket, and the stick was in his hand. And this is the stick with which all the works of our Alahayam were performed after he had created heaven and earth and all hosts of them, seas, rivers, and all their fishes. And when Alahayam had driven Adam from the Garden of Eden, he took the stick in his hand and went and tilled the ground from which he was taken. And the stick came down to Noah and was given to Shem and his descendants until it came into the hand of Abraham the Hebrew. And when Abraham had given all he had to his son Yitzhak, he also gave him the stick. And when Yaakov had fled to uh, Padanaram, he took it into his hand. And when he returned to his father, he had not left it behind him. Also, when he went down to Mitzrayim, he took it into his hand and gave it to Yosef, one portion ab uh, above his brethren, for Yaakov had taken it by force from his brother Esau. And after the death of Yosef, the nobles of Mitzrayim came into the house of Yosef, Yosef, and the stick came into the hand of Reuel, the Midianites, so, of course, we know Reuel was a uh, priest of Midian, and this is Moshe's father-in-law. And when he went out of Mitzrayim, he took it in his hand and planted it in his garden. And all the mighty men of the uh, Canaanim Cana tried to pluck it when they endeavored to get Zipporah, that would be Moshe's uh, future wife, his daughter. But they were unsuccessful. So all these guys are trying to pull this rod the staff out of the ground so that they could be worthy to marry his daughter. So that stick remained planted in the garden of Reuel until he came who had a right to it and took it. And so you can, well, let me just finish this. And when Reuel saw the stick in the hand of Moshe, he wondered at it and he gave him his daughter Zipporah for a woman. This comes from Yashar chapter 77. You could actually see here a, um, if the same thing happened with, uh, Yehusha HaMashiach, that he pulled the same rod out of the ground, which is what I'm going to be suggesting tonight, of course. You could see a, of course, it shows him to be worthy of the bride, just as Moshe was worthy of the bride. You see something messianic in that. So what have we so far learned? The rod which Moshe plucked from the garden was once the personal property of Yahuwah Avahayam and was instrumental in his works. It then passed from Adam to Noah to Shem to Abraham and then right on down to the patriarchs through Yaakov where it was handed off to his second youngest son, Yosef. It wasn't simply the property of Yahuwah Allahayam, though. His name was written upon it. That shouldn't go unnoticed. I mean, I noticed it, but I've already failed to show you why his name is so important when it is the sword in the stone which we are attempting to make comparisons with. So reading once more from Robert de Baron's account, we get this. Those who beheld this one, so we're going back to the sword in the stone, okay? So just we're jumping back and forth so you're not confused. Those who beheld this wonder ran to the church to tell the people, because Arthur had just pulled the sword. And the archbishop came out bearing holy water and precious relics, and he went and saw the stone and sprinkled it with holy water. 
Then he noticed what was written on the sword, that whoever could draw the sword from the stone would be king by the choice of Jesus Christos. And that comes from Merlin. All right, so anyone who pulled the sword from the stone would be king of Britain by order of Jesus Christos. And that's, of course, going by the Latin. His name was written upon it, not a coincidence. It stands to reason, then, that the same can be said of the rod of Yahuwah. And I haven't even gotten around to talking about Yehuda's part in the story quite yet. Now, this is what we read in the Jonathan Targum, or Exodus chapter 14. This would be the Aramaic Targum. And Moshe stretched out his hand over the sea with the great and glorious rod, which was created at the beginning, and on which were engraven and set forth the great and glorious name, and the ten signs which had smitten the misery, and the three fathers of the world, and the six mothers, and the twelve tribes of Yaakov, and straightway Yahuwah, or Yahuwah brought a vehement east wind upon the sea all night and made the sea dry and divided the waters into 12 divisions according to the 12 tribes of Yaakov. So, so the very rod which he pulls out of the garden in Reuel's garden to marry Zipporah, he's now using to part the Red Sea. Interesting that the name of Mashiach is written on, uh, the, on the sword and the stone because the name of Yahuwah is inscribed upon the rod. And wouldn't you know they're both the same? That is my position, the very least, that Yahuwah, I have to keep saying this because there's going to be someone new out there. Uh, many people know him as Yahuwah or Yahweh. Some people say Jehovah. I am of the opinion that Yahuwah is the son of Allah Hayam. Okay, he's the son of God. He's Mashiach, Yahushua Mashiach. And I'm sticking to it. So here, uh, here the rod is said to include the three fathers of the world, the six mothers and the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes are a given, well, that'd be the 12 sons of uh, Yaakov or Yasharel. But who might the others be? Well, there's Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov. Those would be the three fathers. Uh, uh, Sharaha or Sarah, Rivka, and then Leah and Rachel are my best guests. Those would be the four mothers. Probably the correct guess. Also, the ten plagues of Mitzrayim should have all of our interest since the kingdom of Mashiach was probably ushered in in a similar manner. I haven't actually gotten to that yet, the, the uh, ten plagues that ushered it in. How it ended up with Reol can probably only be explained in that he was a priest of Midian. I'm thinking there is a Mechilzedek relationship to be found there. I've, I've kind of changed my opinion a little bit on that now that you know it seems that Reol was a little bit more of a pagan goyim, though he did probably come from a Melchizedek um, uh, uh, tradition originally. We finally see him convert later on, but that's a different story. And then notice how Zipporah was given as a woman only after Moshe pulled the rod from the earth. The reason being is that Reuel would only hand off his daughter in marriage to the one who was worthy of the rod. There had been many suitors, but none were capable of accomplishing the deed. Uh, further information is given to us in uh, LLTJ, that'd be Legends of the Jews, and this is what it says. One of the seven maidens whom Moses saw at the well attracted his notice in particular on account of her modest demeanor, and he made her a proposal of marriage. But Zipporah repulsed him, saying, My father has a tree in his garden with which he tests every man that expresses a desire to marry one of his daughters, and as soon as the suitor touches the tree, he is devoured by it. You figure his daughters must have hated this rod because they're like, they see this handsome man come in. They're attracted to him. They're like, please pull the rod. Oh, he didn't pull the rod. You know, 
you figure they started hating this rod. Anyways, Moses says, whence has he the tree? And Zipporah says, it is the rod that the Holy One, blessed be he, created in the twilight of the first Sabbath Eve and gave to Adam. He transmitted it to Enoch. From him, to, it descended to Noah and then to Shem and Abraham and Isaac and finally to Jacob, who brought it with him to Egypt and gave it to his son Joseph. When Joseph died, the Egyptians pillaged his house and the rod, which was in their booty, they brought to Pharaoh's palace. At that time, my father was one of the most prominent of the king's sacred scribes. And as such, he had the opportunity of seeing the rod. He felt a great desire to possess it, and he stole it and took it to his house. On this raw, the ineffable name is graven. That would be Yahuwah. And also the ten plagues that Allah Hayam will cause to visit the Egyptians in a future day. We already saw that. For many years it lay in my father's house. One day he was walking in his garden carrying it, and he stuck it in the ground. When he attempted to draw it out again, he found that it had sprouted and was putting forth blossoms. Wasn't that interesting? That is the rod with which he tries any of it desire to marry his daughters. He insists that our suitors shall attempt to pull it out of the ground, but as soon as they touch it, it devours them. The Legends of the Jews, Volume 2. The rod was stolen from among Yosef's possessions after his death and then taken to Pharaoh's house. From there, Reuel reacquired the rod without permission, securing it in Midian in the whereabouts of Sinai, the mountain of Yahuwah. I'm under the impression that he did so as an act of duty to the Allahayam of Abraham, whom he was descended uh, from through Keturah. And that, that's true. Uh, he obviously comes from Midian, who is, uh, after Sharaha died, Abraham marries Keturah, and they have Midian, and he's descended from Midian. Was Reuel aware that it was intended to return into the hands of Yahuwah again? Well, it did. The rod is most certainly a MacGuffin in the Millennial Kingdom narrative, but I'm not quite ready to go there yet. We'll get there. Now, the history of the the his story, excuse me, the his story of the rod has just been given in Yasher as well as LOTJ, and yet Yehuda has been completely snubbed from both accounts. Isn't that strange? All indications seem to imply that he possessed the rod as well. The kingship was passed to Yehuda after Reuben's transgression, though he very nearly lost it as well. The account which I am thinking of follows the sins of Er and Onan, the, the excuse me, but the meat-beating brothers. Uh, Tamar was a daughter from the house of Shem, whom Yehuda gave to his sons in marriage. The short of it is that Er and Onan's mother was Shuach the Canaanite. She hated Shem as well as the Hebrews, even though she married one. And so, hoping that they would no longer breed among the sons of Ham, she decided to play the part of a sex coach. Aaron Onan did the deed, an act which involved spilling their seed. They then died, leaving Tamar a widow as well as apparently a virgin. And now you have been caught up to speed. All right, so reading from the Testament of Yehuda, this is what we glean. And after these things, while Tamar was a widow, she heard after two years that I was going up, this is Yehuda speaking on his deathbed, to shear my sheep and adorned herself in bridal array, and sat in the city Enam by the gate. For it was a law of the Amorites that she who was about to marry should sit in fornication seven days by the gate. What a terrible law. You couldn't marry a woman unless if she was fornicated with every man who wanted her for seven days. Tamar traded in one veil for another. 
The idea is the law of the Amorites dictated that all expected brides should sit in fornication seven days by the gate. It means every man had a right to pay for her, get a shot at impregnating her with their seed before the man of the hour. Let him deal with the offspring. Undoubtedly, another Canaanite tactic. If you can't force them from the land, breed them out. Well, here is the account as told to us in Bereshit, and that would be Genesis. And it was reported to Thumar, that would be uh, Tamar, that her father-in-law was going up to Thumanuth to shear his sheep. So she put off her widow's garment and concealed herself in her veil and went down and sat at the opening by the wells, which were on the road to Thumanuth, for she saw that Shalaha was grown up and he was not given to her as a husband. So uh, Yehuda had another son, Shalahas, who should have been her husband, uh, the third in line. Uh, yeah, uh, Yehuda regarded her, and he thought she was a prostitute, for she had hidden her face. So he turned from the road to her and said, Come on, have intercourse with me. For he knew not she was his daughter-in-law. Then she said, What will you give it? What will you give to me if I have intercourse with you? And he replied, I will send you a kid of the goats or sheep. And she replied, What will you uh, what you will give me as a pledge that you will send them. And he replied, what is the pledge that I shall give to you? And she answered, your signet ring, the twisted thread it hangs upon, and the stick you have in your hand. So he gave her them, and he had intercourse with her, and she conceived to him. Then she arose and went and put the veil from off her and dressed herself in her widow's garments. That comes from Bereshif in the uh, Paleo translation, chapter 38. There it is, the rod of Yahuwah. At least I think it's the rod of Yahuwah. Yehuda handed it to Tamar as a temporary payment for his lust until the kid of a goat could be secured. Good thing she happened to be the daughter of Shem or else his story may have taken a very different turn. Why am I not surprised to learn that the twin sons were conceived in the teepee and that Peretz was one of them? Look at Mashiach's genealogy in Bezora Matithyahu. Why don't you? That would be Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. From Peretz, we come upon Boaz, who married Ruth, the great-grandmother of David. Eventually, the lineage of David passed on to Yosef, the father of Miriam, of whom was born Yehusha HaMashiach. As a Mechilzedek king-priest, the rod would have been his to possess. All right. By the way, I am fully convinced that Yosef, the father of Miriam, was the same Yosef of Ramah who buried Yehusha in a tomb They'll most simply know him as Joseph of Arimathea. So uh, there's a lot of different theories on this. For, for a while, I was a suspect that Joseph of Arimathea was Yahusha's uh, great uncle, uh, still you know, related to Miriam, uh, his, his mother. But I, I'm convinced now like that, that actually Joseph of Rama, Joseph of Arimathea, was actually his grandfather. And when Yosef, Yahusha's father, died when he was young, about what, 12 or so, uh, that his grandfather, Yosef of Rama, took him under his wing and raised him. This is why he raised him. He, he was the next uh, in line to uh, come in. So when writing Mary Magdalene, wife of Messiah, I was working under the assumption that Yosef was Yehusha's great uncle. Nope, he wasn't. Yosef was Yehusha's grandfather. And where, and where did Yosef end up but Britain? So this is what we read in the book of Britain. Then were the shipborne wanderers given land over from the Isle of Departure, the Isle of Departure's Avalon, where uh, King Arthur was buried, saying, uh, obviously not yet, saying that 
Could they live where no one else could because of the spirits? Then their holiness would be established before all the people. The strangers were sorely tried by the Druids, but the spirits troubled them not, nor did the sickness of the place come upon them, and the people wondered. Book of Britain 1.9. To be more precise, uh, now keep in mind, Book of Britain, if you don't know what that is, it's a very ancient book, uh, very, very ancient. Uh, probably, I mean, I think it was probably written what, four or 500 in the, in the whereabouts then? To be more precise, Yosef formed a settlement on the Isle of Departure, which is the same thing as Avalon, where the Lady of the Lake lived and later on handed the sword Excalibur to Arthur. From there, the Ruachoth of the dead were said to depart the world. Nobody, not even the Druids, were capable of living in the area because a portal into the spiritual realm existed there. That is, until Yosef and company they arrived in Britain. I believe Mary, Miriam of Migdol was in his company. Uh, they arrived there and they survived the night untroubled or unharmed. The spirits wouldn't touch them. They had power of the spirits. And just look at what was in his possession, why don't you? Now, his name here is uh, Iliad, Elid. That's the same as Yosef of Rama, same guy. So Iliad is, is buried, it, according to the Book of Britain, it says, uh, Yosef of Rama is buried outside the forked path before the church and on his tomb was written i brought christos to the britons and taught them i buried christos and now here my body is at rest islas was the first convert and it is said that she alone so islas is a local first to be converted by the father of the faith there in britain uh yosef arama uh Yahusha's grandfather islas was the first convert and it is said that she alone knew the secret of the holy hawthorne hmm. But this may be none can now know, can know now. So, <laughs> so apparently, okay, whatever. Uh, so even back then when he wrote this book, he's saying nobody knows what it is. It is said that when the Druthan murmured against the staff of Yosef of Rama, say what? She placed a twig in water and it flowered. Where have we seen that before? Here in this holy place under the direct guidance of Allah Hayam, our father, founded the first church in Britain. Of course, their father is, right, Yosef of Rama. It is said that, that it was not built by human hands, which is true, and from here shall come that which will be the salvation of mankind in years to come. So they're saying the ultimate salvation of mankind, right, I think the kingdom expanding on the earth is coming from here. Here was the resting place of the souls of the dead where they received their last sustenance, before passing through the glass wall. Uh, I think the glass wall could be a reference to the firmament. From here ran the old road to the place of light where the bright-winged spirits flew freely in a place called Dainsart in the Old Tongue. And that, that's still the, the Isle of Avalon. Book of Britain, chapter 1, 19 through 21. Why were the Druids arguing over the staff of Yosef? He appears to have already been dead by this point. Well, rods were a symbol of authority as per Psalm 23, 4. Though the staff which he arrived with appears to have risen far above the metaphor. Isles, his first convert, placed a twig in water and it flowered, reminding us of Aaron's rod. What happened, and of course, uh, the, uh, the rod of Moshe that he pulled out of Yahuwah, that one flowered as well. What happened to the rod is anybody's guess, but I, I think I know. And here's what we read in Revelation chapter 19. And out of his mouth was a sharp sword. That's kind of interesting right there, right? And that with it, he should smite the nations. Is this the same 
type of Excalibur sword. I, I kind of wonder if that's actually literal now. I understand that the I know that the sword is the word, right? The Torah. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Definitely literal. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Yahuwah, uh, Yahuwah Sivaoth. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Yahuwah Adonai. That's telling you right there that Yahusha HaMashiach is Yahuwah. He is uh, Yahweh of the Old Testament. I checked all four Gospels and then some. Yahusha HaMashiach was never seen with a rod in his possession during his original earthly ministry. But then when he reemerges as King of Kings during his thousand-year reign, he's suddenly sporting one. What gives? You can come to your own conclusion, but I am of the opinion that the rod of Yahuwah and Yahusha's rod are never seen in the room together because they are the same. Moshe pulled it from the garden, proving his worth. What are the chances that Yahusha HaMashiach did the same with, we now see that Yosef Arama's rod is in Britain, right? The Arthurian storytellers were, in my opinion, reciting from an actual event in his story. Yosef of Ramah carried the rod of Yahuwah to Britain so that Yahusha HaMashiach might prove his worth. Only afterwards is Arthur said to have done the same. The defining difference, as you well know by now, is that it's the red dragon as well as the seed of the red dragon whom the Arthurian storytellers were rooting for. Supposing the sword and the stone did break, as the, uh, the Arthurian storytellers insist, only to be replaced by Excalibur. Suppose that is the truth. Or suppose that actually happened. Perhaps that is their clever way of undermining the rod of Yahuwah. Now, I'm not done yet. Those of you who participate in my weekly tour portions will perhaps recall the trip which Miss Pamela's paleo translation sent me on. No psychedelics were involved. Discovering the truth is enough of a uh, serotonin activation. Thank you very much. The passage which plunged me right down the track of the rickety wooden roller coaster derives from Shemawath. That would be Exodus. Uh, most of you know that's Exodus. Remember when Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and it became a serpent? Well, that's not exactly what it says in the paleo. This Yahuwah, the ever-living, spoke to Meshaha and to Aaron, saying, Since Pharaoh has said to you, give us evidence, Instruct Aaron, take your branch before Pharaoh, the branch would be the rod, and before his ministers, and he will exist of Thunuyan. All right, so look at that word, Thunuyan. We'll, we'll discuss that. Meshaha and Aaron therefore went to Pharaoh and did as Yahuwah the ever-living commanded, and he cast down his branch, that would be his rod, to the face of Pharaoh and to the face of his ministers, his fellow wizards, and he will exist of Thunuyan. But Pharaoh summoned the wise men and enchanters, and they, the sacred scribes, fashioned a flaming metal rod. So a flaming metal rod. And he cast down every man his rod, and they existed of Thunuyan as well. But Aaron's branch devoured their rods. However, the heart of Pharaoh was strong, and he would not listen to them. He wouldn't let his people go, just as Yahuwah the ever-living had foretold. That comes from Exodus chapter 7, 8 through 13. So just so you know, the word Thunuyan describes a dragon or a sea serpent, not a snake. Their first appearance can be found in Bereshith chapter 1. Allah Hayam created the Thunuyan in the waters rather than the land. 
The Masoretic Hebrew goes with tannin. So you've heard of tannin stories, which describes the same thing, a coiled and gigantic serpentine sea creature. Many refuse to believe the, in the existence of sea serpents or dragons and insist tannin was a description for whale. Oh, fine. Then let's go with whale before somebody's programming breaks down and citing the arrival of, a, of an Imagineer animatronics repairman from the Wonderland Underground. I guess that means the rod turned into a beached whale. Blub, blub, blub. Looks like Pharaoh's wizards turned their rods into beach whales as well. I've never seen a beach whale eat numerous other beach whales, but there is some normie logic for you. Nope, they were serpents of the aquatic dragon variety. When I gave you the account, this is why I kind of went over this again tonight. When I gave you the account of Merlin's prophecy, the one in which Vortigern watched a red and a white dragon combating the other, as per the history of the Kings of Britain, I forgot to mention that the pool was drained only because the dragons lived within the water. The longer story is that Vortigern made several attempts at building a tower. I, I described this earlier. I'll just repeat it again. And in every instance, it crumbled. Merlin explained that there was a pool of water under the earth where the tower stood and that two separate dragons lived inside rocks within the body of water. So they too were water dragons, all right? They were like these tannins, these coiled serpents. Also recall what the issue was over. Merlin explained that the white dragon represented the Saxons and that the Saxons, a.k.a. the sons of Yitchak or the sons of Isaac, would defeat the red dragon, a stand-in for Uther Pendragon's kingdom and the red dragon of Revelation. Well, the same thing happened in Mitchell Balaam and his wizards, uh, according to Jasher, Balaam was there, uh, were capable of creating dragons from rods of their own, indicating the know uh, the the know-how of the mysteries of Mitchell But in the end, it was the dragon metamorphosized from the rod of Aaron, which devoured the others. Was it white in color too? It just goes to show that his story repeats itself and the rod of Yahuwaha hits closer to home than I had ever previously realized. So obviously here's a medieval uh, painting of Yahushua HaMashiach rising from the tomb. And, um, you know, really interesting that, you know, I know that there's the garden tomb now. Just so you guys know, I, I am, I have now through studying this, have come to the opinion that I am not convinced that the garden tomb is the tomb of Yahushua HaMashiach. Uh, I actually, I actually think the, where the church of the Holy Sepulcher is, is the historical location and that the tomb was actually in the ground. Uh, there seems to be a, a good indication that the tomb was actually in the ground, that it wasn't like uh, a, a hole in the rock. I, I know that that's how they did tombs typically, but we've seen this textually over and over again, and then we see it in many pictures as well. Uh, you see it all through, like apparently in the, the, the Middle Ages, they all believe that he came up out of the ground as well. But you can see in all these pictures here, he all has, what does he have? He has a rod. Really interesting. And then it occurred to me, medieval art, ha as a habit, likes to show Yahushua resurrecting from the dead with a scepter. In, every, in nearly every instance, the cross, though I prefer the mark of Tav, the mark of the Tav, can be visible above. And so, yeah, so you see the, he's got uh, a rod, a scepter, a very long rod, but it has the tab on top, the cross. 
dang, I didn't even think about the rod aspect of the equation when writing my line-for-line -line commentary on Bezora Kepha. That'd be the Gospel of Peter. Because in that one, the mark of the Tav follows him out of the tomb, if you recall. You remember, it? it uh, um, actually, I'm going to quote from it here, so I don't need to you know, rephrase it. And of course, seeing as how it is the his story of Yahuwah's rod that we're dealing with, I might as well quote from that passage again. So here it goes. When therefore those soldiers saw it, they awakened the centurion and the elders, for they too were hard by keeping guard. And as they declared what things they had seen, again they saw three men come forth from the tomb, and two of them supporting one, and a cross following them. So these two angels, they enter, they break into the tomb, they pull him out, and they're actually like, I kind of imagine it that like, they're supporting him. So maybe his arms are kind of like around them or something like that. And they're actually, they're carrying him out. Or maybe it's kind of like uh, the supporting him kind of like, uh, like here's the king, right? All hail the king, something like that. I, I guess I could see it in either way. And of the two, the, the, the head reached to the heaven. So they're saying the, these, um, the two, these two angels went up to like the firmament, right? They, their head went up to the firmament. But the head of him who was led by them overpassed the heavens. And they heard a voice from the heavens saying, you have preached them the, to them to sleep. And a response was heard from the cross, from the Tav, yay. I will remind you that we only have one incomplete copy of Bezor Kepha and that dead men do tell, do tell tales because it was pulled from the bones of a naughty monk. Considering the sheer amount of medieval artwork, artwork before us, it seems to be that Kifa's Bezora was far more popular than we are told. That's where the residents of the kingdom had firsthand knowledge of the scepter emerging from the grave because the three synoptic gospels and Bezora Yochanan don't divulge. So what I'm saying is you're seeing all this, this artwork that doesn't line up with the four canonical gospels. Interestingly enough, it does seem to uh, be a picture that we can see in Bezora Kifa. The boys down at seminary love to criticize the Tav passage in Kifa but then it just goes to show how often arrogance is tied up with mockery. The kingdom residents knew a thing or two. Now, in the same artwork, we can see instances of something resembling the Templar flag. Uh-oh. Never has there been an instance of a red flag being printed on an actual flag, apparently. Let me see if I can go find one here. Like right there, you can see the, the a couple examples of a, a nice-looking Templar flag. Well, well, then you should know about my current position on the Templars. They weren't who Illuminati written history books claim they were. My Friday the 13th paper digs dips into that as well as their connection with the Shroud. I'm of the suggestion that they were actual soldiers of the Millennial Kingdom and that our inheritors claimed otherwise via war propaganda. They gave them a whole false history and, and uh, you know, it, it total kangaroo court, how it ended which reminds me of the Nuremberg trials. Also evident is that Yosef of Rama buried Mashiach with the scepter, telling us it was in his possession all along. Now, here we see more of some of these pictures. If you've been following some of my videos recently, should ring a bell with, we see Hellmouth. The scepter even... The scepter even made the journey into Sheol. That much should be made evident with the talking Tav in Bezora Kifa, right? The Tav, I mean, uh, the voice from heaven, which I believe to be the Ruach HaKadosh, 
inquired regarding whether or not the people Sheol had been preached to, and the response from the Tav was, yay, right? So meaning the Tav was there, which is fascinating because here we are seeing all this artwork. Again, we're told the Bezoric Hefa, the Gospel of Peter, you know, there's only one surviving copy, and yet they're all giving this depiction of this Tav, this cross, uh, going down to Sheol with them. And of course, many times showing the depiction, I, you know, the Templars, right? But it's the mark of the Tav. No surprise, medieval artwork attests to the same story. The Hellmouth creature should be familiar to you by this point, supposing you've managed my Leviathan series. And so what I'm about to tell you is yet another instance of my, my multiverse, I should call it my kingdom verse, research bleeding together into one coherent vision. Remember that time I told you about the hidden wilderness? It happens to be a book I wrote. If you've managed to hibernate through the entire discussion, then it will do you good to learn that the blessed land is a physical location in the greater material realm where Mashiach and the saints, but also New Yerushalayim, New Jerusalem, currently resides on our earth now. What I'm about to do is take my 7,000-year timeline deception research along with this current rod of Yahuwah research and then show you how it all ties into the glorious appearing of Yahusha HaMashiach, because this is my kingdom verse and the hidden wilderness. Are you ready for it? I am, even if you're not. Going ahead without your permission, as is so often the case in these parts, here it goes. Second Passover is a hot topic of conversation on the internet, and just about everyone and their mom wants to know when it will occur. I get this question all the time. People ask me all the time in a depressing manner if I think it's already happened, as if that's a bad thing. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news for all of you watching the Zionist narrative and keeping your fingers crossed, but oh, it's happened. Meanwhile, another percentage of you have never heard of Second Passover before, not until like 10 seconds ago, and are pissed to have learned it already went down and you missed out on a good time. And of course, there are a skeptical handful of you wondering if Second Passover is even a thing or if it's something I just made up a moment ago. It's totally real. Here is where I am pulling my information from. So what book is this? This is uh, Numbers. Then Yahuwah said to Moshe, Speak unto the children of Yashrael, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Pesach, the Passover, unto Yahuwah, the 14th day of the second month. So keep in mind, Passover would be the Passover would typically be the 14th day of the first month. So now you got to let a whole month pass. At even, at even they shall keep it and eat it with uh, matzah, that would be unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any bone of it according to all the ordinances of the Pesach. They shall keep it. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbears to keep the Pesach, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people because he brought not the offering of Yahuwah in his appointed season, that man shall bear his sin. Numbers chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Much discussion has been uh, has been had regarding, regarding whether or not second Passover is applicable to those of us scattered across the realm in our current short season diaspora, or any diaspora for that matter. Uh, so the point being is that uh, 
Uh, seeing as how we aren't making the yearly trek to Jerusalem, and I have good reason not to, the point some are making is that we are accounted as those on a journey and should look to the 14th day of the month, of the second month, rather than the first. Meaning some people think that we shouldn't be keeping the first Passover, that we should be keeping second Passover. Another observation worth making are the dead bodies. A person is unclean if he touches one and therefore cannot partake. Assuming Yosef and Nicodemus, as well as, as the Miriams present, there were a few Miriams, Miriam Salome, Miriam's mother, Miriam of Migdal, were on the same feast calendar as the Yahudim and had yet to partake in the Passover meal, then they too would have had to wait an additional month because they buried a dead person into a tomb, obviously. But then it's not like the dead person can partake either, being unclean. It's what makes Yahusha's entry into Sheol so fascinating. Before I touch on that point, I give you another piece of the puzzle. This comes from Jeremiah, Yermiyahu 23, 7-8. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahuwah, when they shall no longer say as Yahuwah lives, who brought up the children of Yashua out of the land of Mitzrayim, but as Yahuwah lives, who brought up the, the, uh, the seed of the house of Yashua out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. One barely needs to read between the lines to know what Yermiyahu is getting at. They call it cross-referencing. It's getting late, guys. Cross-referencing for a reason. Yahuwah was promising a future second Passover in contrast to the first. The second one, accordingly, would be so great a mile marker that the Exodus accounts, the you know the angel of death going through the Red Sea, the Exodus account would seem like a prologue by comparison, mind you. The children of Yahshua, the children of Yahshua were not being instructed to stop Passover observance. That's that never happens anywhere in scripture. No, they were told there would be another Passover event so amazing that one could not even imagine observing the commands without the second event filling every fiber of their consciousness. Returning to the question of the hour. The one I keep getting it is in regard to when the second Passover is supposed to take place. Hmm. I wonder when that is. Hmm. Let's put our heads together and try to figure this one out. When was there a sequel Passover event so amazing that the entire world remembers that one over the original? Yermiyahu describes the second Passover event as one which would bring the house of Yashrael out of the north country as well as all the countries where Yahuwaha had driven them um, in the diaspora. Hmm. Well, I can't come up with anything. I'm stumped. Let's see if the following passage can jog our memory. Then Yahuwaha, stretching forth his hand, made the sign of the Tav upon Adam and upon all the Kodashim, all the saints that set apart. And taking hold of Adam by his right hand, he ascended from Sheol, and all the saints of Allahayam followed him. Then Yahuwah, holding Adam by the hand, delivered him to Mikael, that would be Michael the archangel, and he led them into paradise filled with mercy and glory. That comes from Bezorah Nicodemus, uh, Gospel of Nicodemus, chapter 19, 11 uh, through 12, and 20, uh, verse, chapter 20, verse 1. I'm just thinking out loud here, but Yahushua HaMashiach was crucified in the hours leading up to the Passover meal, according to 
the uh, the Passover that the, the Yahudim are keeping. The inhabitants of Sheol were dead, and you could also say on a journey, thereby checking off both requirements of Numbers chapter 9. It should also be mentioned that every dead soul brought to life in paradise at the hand of Yehusha HaMashiach was a righteous individual. They were the Torah keepers, indicating that Passover had been their cup of tea while on earth. And now the blood of the lamb literally saved them from death. I will ask. Moving forward, which Passover event do you suspect they would remember the most? It's okay, you can say it. The Passover when Gahuwaha died like a Trojan horse so that he could uh, be hand-delivered to Sheol by Satan and save them. That would be the second Passover event. In a minute, I'll be quoting from Odes of Shaloma. The reason for this is because I theorized a few years ago now that Odes was a testimonial of the resurrected sainthood. And you could, there's a link there to my paper, Odes of Solomon in the Millennial Kingdom. I'll also turn that into a video. Ode 42 is the platter being served up today. I give you the entire chapter for context purposes. And as you shall see through your own bifocals, the scene involves what we have already read in Bezorah and Nicodemus. Not only that, but the narrator also identifies himself as the resurrected savior, Yahusha. Here it goes. I extend my hands and approach my Adonai for the expression of my hands is his sign. And that would be the sign of the Tav. And my extension is the upright cross that was lifted up on the way of the righteous one. And I became useless to those who knew me not because I shall hide myself from those who possess me not. And I will be with those who love me. All my persecutors have died and they sought me. They who declared against me because I am living. Then I arose and am with them and will speak by their mouths. For they have rejected those who persecuted them. And I threw over them the yoke of my love. Like the arm of the bridegroom over the bride, so is my yoke over those who know me. And as the bridal chamber is spread out by the bridal pair's home, so is my love by those who believe in me. I was not rejected, although I was considered to be so, and I did not perish, although they thought it of me. Sheol saw me and was shattered, and death ejected me and many with me. I have been vinegar and bitterness to it, and I went down with it as far as its depth. That's interesting that I just noticed there he's vinegar and bitterness to death, right? Um, that's uh, I, I think that actually that could be translated to um, to poison, uh, like hemlock. It could be like because hemlock brings death, but he was actually hemlock to death kind of. Shit. He was the death of death. Then the feet and the head it released because it was not able to endure my face. And I made a congregation of living among the dead, among his dead. And I spoke with them by living lips in order that my word may not be unprofitable. And those who had died, I love this scene right here. This is the most beautiful scene. And those who had died ran towards me. And they cried out and said, son of Allah, have pity on us. And deal with us according to your kindness and bring us out from the bonds of darkness. And open for us the door by which we may come out to you. Remember, Yehush HaMashiach is the door, right? For we perceive that our death does not touch you. May we also be saved with you because you are our Savior. Then I heard their voice and placed their faith in my heart. And I placed my name upon their head because they are free and they are mine. Hallelujah. 
Odes of Solomon 42. Recall the first Passover. Death was ejected from the homes of Yashrael and Mitzrayim so long as they had the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. They then went free from bondage. Well, it happened again in Sheol. They were covered under the, they were covered under the blood of the living lamb and set free in heaven or paradise. My favorite part of the entire ode is when the dead run towards Mashiach crying out for pity. Why hasn't that scene been made into a movie? If they do it right, then they can have my money. Take it. I'll totally plop my patty cakes down into a seat and watch that movie. Uh, while the filmmakers are at it, be sure to write this very bizarre scene into the shooting script wherein Mashiach runs the demon through with the Tav he was crucified upon and is that the lance of Longinus. So epic. Perhaps the scepter of Yahuwah doubles as a weapon. Who knows? Who knew the second password event? What account could be so badass? The part where Mashiach states he placed their faith in his heart is probably a reference to the renewed covenant. As per Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34, you can read it for yourself. That's an additional topic included in the, the 7,000 year timeline deception, wherein I where I show you how the requirements of the New Testament are only met by the resurrected rather than mortals, which is precisely what is happening here. So yes, we are technically living in New Testament times as the renewed covenant was cut by Yahushua, by our savior. But when lawless Christians tell me they don't have to keep the Torah because the law is written on their hearts, they're by invoking Jeremiah 31, then LOL, 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 LMAP. Other internet abbreviations which seem applicable at the moment are ADIH, PITR, and G2G. All you baby boomers and Gen Xers should look them up because they're totally applicable IMO. Now, time to close shop for the night. Only a careless observer will claim I didn't get to the part where the second Passover ties into the hidden wilderness. That was already covered in Yermiyahu 23, 7-8, when Yahuwah states, uh, they shall dwell in their own land, that they shall dwell in their own land. That would be a reference if ever I've seen one to the hidden wilderness. I was seeing if you were paying attention. It's where New Yerushalayim is, you know, and where, where uh, second Passover must take place for the unclean dead uh, handler and traveler. But, uh, oh, wait, hold on. Um, and where must second pass? I read that's wrong. And where must second Passover take place for the unclean dead uh, and the traveler, but in Yerushalayim? Boom, there it is. The only thing we haven't come around full circle with is the rod of Yahuwah. Well, I'm about to do it. I won't leave you hanging. Not only that, but I'm also about to reference the rod, the hidden wilderness, and second Passover all in one account. You know how you make a theological claim in the chapter and verse? People are like, you know, chapter and verse, please, which I do that all the time. I would know because I happen to be one of those people. Chapter and verse of this then. And this is what it says in, uh, where, what chapter and verse is this? Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38. Let me scroll this down so you guys can see this. As I live, declares Yahuwah Alahayam. Surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the 
wilderness of the people. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Mitraim, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares Yahuwah Alahayam. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Yasharel. Then you will know that I am Yahuwah. That comes from Ezekiel chapter 20. Come on now. You and I both know the land of Yasharel being spoken of here is the true land of it, inheritance via New Yerushalayim, Paradise, and Zion in the north. I don't need to go through that whole Bible study lesson again of, you know, Abraham, the, the true land he was looking for, the true city he was looking for, New Yerushalayim. We've been through this so many times already. It exists in a place I like to call the hidden wilderness. That's where Yehusha HaMashiach holds up his rod, allowing the children of Yasharel to pass through on one exception, that they keep the bond of the covenant. That's undoubtedly where the Torah written upon the heart comes into it, as per the, the, the renewed covenant cut in Yirmiyahu, which is then uh, referenced in, well, the New Testament. That's the new covenant, the renewed covenant, which furthermore invokes the resurrected sort. So the, these are resurrected people we're seeing here. Well, there he is, Yahusha, still ruling over his kingdom with a rod, I see. And what is the rod used for exactly? Well, making sure the covenant is kept, making sure the rebels and the Torah transgressors have no other entry part. Really, it's quite amazing the sheer level of cognitive dissonance out there. The very notion that the millennial kingdom of Mashiach already transpired is a growing trend on the internet. I'm not at all bitter when I tell you my research uh, is, I'm, I'm really not bitter when I say this. I, when I tell you my research is simultaneously more uh, thorough and more snub than anybody's. The reason being is that the Torah abides in hardly anyone that I can find out there wants to live by it. it. It much less be convicted of the transgressions. I mean, it's great in all that people are pointing out what has already come and gone, but then desiring to live a righteous life in the present short season of deception seems to me like the next natural step. A king has laws, does he not? So why do you suppose the kingdom came to an end? Oh, gee. You have to wonder if there's any book in the world that wrote them down, the king's laws. You have to wonder, is it out there? What are the king's laws and where can we find them? Where can we be obedient to them? Notice what Ezekiel 20 doesn't say. It doesn't say the non-believers in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus will be cast out. No, it says the rebels from among the ranks. Those would be the, it says the transgressors. I guess that's why the last provided line is so important for everyone out there claiming that Jesus came to undo Yahuwah's commands. The decisive moment will come. The person who hopes to pass into the land will finally have to come to terms with the fact that the man who hold, holds the rod isn't just Yahushua HaMashiach. The man who holds the rod is Yahuwah. Uh, the very person who gave us the Torah. All right, so that's all for tonight. Uh, hopefully you guys were able to follow that. I kind of jumped around a lot. I talked about the rod being with Moses, the rod being with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the, road, the rod being with Yahushua when he went down to Sheol. 
the rod being with Yahushua in his kingdom and holding it out and uh, kind of give you a history there and thinking that there is a clear connection between uh, Moshe pulling the rod out and King Arthur uh, or Arthur becoming king, pulling the rod, uh, pulling the sword out of the stone. Uh, both have the name of the creator written on it. That's all, folks. I'll try to have something again for you next week, uh, some more original material. And uh, just to let you guys know, any week here, I'm um, I'm going to be beginning a series on uh, Galatians, uh, written by Paul, Galatians according to the Torah. And I'm going to be showing why Paul was Torah observant and uh, why, uh, as Peter says, that uh, his writings are twisted to the destruction of many. Uh, so with that, uh, good night, everybody. Get a restful Sabbath. Love you guys. We'll be doing this again.